Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. I've been thinking a lot about my 30s lately, probably because I turned 38 this year, and I'm quickly approaching a new age demographic. It's been a really creative time for me, though I remember initially not taking it very well. I think turning 30 was the first time that I truly realized the speed of time. Older people had told me about this phenomenon, but I guess I didn't necessarily believe them. I mean, it felt like it took forever to get from the age of 10 to 20. But 20 to 30 felt as if it took no time at all. And for someone who was already a bit too preoccupied with a fear of death, this was a frightening epiphany. But as an English major... I knew that epiphanies bring about significant change. When I look back on my 20s, I think my main areas of focus were all related to being a responsible adult. I became a husband, a father, a homeowner, and a full-time employee all during that particular period, and it was exactly what I wanted. I didn't really like being a kid. I'd always felt like an old man trapped in a child's body, so I naturally embraced adulthood when it arrived. And for the most part, I was really happy. But then I turned 30, and like I said, it really freaked me out. Granted, I did have my first existential crisis at 21 while staring at a cracked bathroom tile in the shower, so it really wasn't all that unusual for me to ponder existence and purpose. I think that's maybe why my 30s have really been about following creative pursuits. I've always been a bit of a daydreamer with an impulse to create, but I think this part of me was a bit tempered during my 20s. I mean, I was definitely still daydreaming, but not really creating much other than humans. Adult responsibility took priority, as it should have, but I do think I may have been subconsciously suppressing an essential part of myself. The act of creating is youthful and innocent, and when I'm an active participant, I feel like my younger self. Because as much as I am like that of a senior citizen, another part of me is still the same wide-eyed 16-year-old, lost in thoughts of potential and possibility, and completely inspired by the creative pursuits of others. It's a feeling that never left, and has only intensified since starting this podcast. It's through this medium that I've been able to honor a youthful sense of wonder. I'm a true believer, and fully buy into the romance of making art and music. And in my mind... There's no place more romantic and inspiring in regards to making art and music than Athens, Georgia. I've made it no secret on this show of how important the music of Athens is to me, especially the scene that blossomed there in the mid to late 90s. As a young man, I was enamored by the scene's true DIY spirit, but also the endless support that the participants seemed to give one another through encouragement and collaboration. This was the most apparent in the bands that made up the loose collective known as Elephant Six. Lending their talents and gear to one another's projects, this group of extremely creative and staunchly independent individuals created an amazing assortment of beautiful and weird pop masterpieces. 
The fact that most of these records were made at home using analog recording equipment and that this was all being done only two hours away from me blew the mind of this wide-eyed 16-year-old. The possibilities were truly endless. And one specific record from that particular place and time that really exemplifies the best that that scene had to offer is Great Lakes' 2000 self-titled debut. I first became aware of Great Lakes because A, they were an Athens band, B, they were an Elephant Six band, and C, they were on my favorite indie label, Kindercore Records. It really was a no-brainer. I knew in my heart it'd be a record for me. I remember ordering their self-titled debut record from Kindercore's website, and when it arrived at my house, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is James Huggins. I often go by Jamie, and I am one of the three songwriters and producers of the uh, Great Lakes. Mercy will be my mighty multi-instrumentalist in the band and created this music with about a dozen people most significantly with Dan Donahue and Ben Crum back in the latest of 90s. I'm Ben Crum. I uh, wrote the music for most of the record with the lyricist with Dan Donahue. I am Dan Donahue and I uh, kind of was maybe the outside weirdo poet artist thing of the band where I wrote lyrics and did artwork and fed everybody weird music and you know kind of I don't know guided some of the path I uh I don't I I remember playing a few little synthesizer parts but definitely more involved from a abstract conceptual level. Ben Crum and Dan Donahue, the nucleus of what would become Great Lakes, first began their songwriting partnership in the Atlanta suburb of Marietta, Georgia. I grew up in uh, suburban Maryland and moved to suburban Atlanta in high school and met Dan in high school. We went to high school together in Marietta. He came in, I think, sophomore year. He was a, like a new kid in school. And so he he was in my English class or whatever, and he came in. I'm pretty sure he was wearing like a Descendant shirt. He was like a skate kid. And I remember just being like, oh, just, you know, sit here. Like, you know, come here, I'll, I'll take care of you. It was pretty easy, pretty natural. We started collaborating. Um, we would like hang out in Dan's basement and stay up all night, like kind of steal a couple beers from his dad's fridge and like go down to the basement with a four track. I had worked at like the movie theater and uh, I bought a four track off like 
I worked with a couple punk kids and some, you know, there was just a bunch of freaks, metalheads and weirdos that worked at the movie theater where I worked. So I bought a Tascam, I think, for like $65. He had just sort of learned to play guitar. And the weird thing is, is when we first started, is I, I think the first couple songs we ever recorded in my basement on a four track, I wrote the music. And he wrote the lyrics, which is weird. And then I think I wrote lyrics and he wrote the music. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is how it should work. <laughs> it was very like, okay, yeah, let's, yeah, I'll, I'll write the words. You, you do, yeah, you write some chords. I remember being pretty adamant, like, like, oh, no, you're, you're better at this. Let, I'll write the words. He took the guitar really quick. And then I had bought a, a Univox Mini Korg at a Kennesaw flea market. The guy had brought it just to sort. He was trying to sell an amp for like 250 bucks. So he had brought this synth to, to like show that the amp worked. But like no one knew how to play a synth. It just sounded weird. It was like, wow. You know, it was like. I laughed. I was like, you're never going to sell this amp with this keyboard. It sounded like hell. I didn't even know how to use it. I was just curious. It looked so cool. And I was like, I was like, I'll give you 75 bucks for this keyboard. I think they're probably about $3,000 on reverb right now. It was the coolest thing. It took me a w many hours to actually get a sound out of it that I was like comfortable with. So then it was like, okay, I guess I'm going to play this. So, yeah, it just was a strange progression, which wound up, I mean, working for sure. It, was, it wasn't in my ability at the time. I mean, I, it is now. It just then I was like, oh, yeah, you take the reins. I didn't really write anything I thought was good until I started working with Dan, you know, and I didn't have to write words. Uh, he would write words and I would write the music. And we wrote a couple of little songs that were like, they sort of like bared repeated listening in an okay way. You know, I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. You know, and then we started to play them live and, you know, people's toes would be tapping and it's like the idea would get across. When we first started writing songs, we called ourselves the Patty Melts. Still think it's a pretty awesome name. It was like the thing you could do back then, like suburban Atlanta, we couldn't go to bars or anything, but we would go see like the all ages rock show at the masquerade. And then we would go, to the uh, Waffle House. You get, you know, like you can't drink, but you can have a patty melt. Scattered, smothered, and covered. Yeah. The core trio of Great Lakes was solidified after Donahue befriends multi-instrumentalist Jamie Huggins from the nearby Atlanta suburb of Dunwoody. Dan Donahue kind of knows everyone. He's like what people might call a maven. He's like a, a real connector, you know? It's not something he learned. It's not something he practiced. He's just God-given has this thing where he knows somebody in Knoxville who knows somebody in Tucson, who knows somebody in Frankfurt, who knows somebody in, you know, Stockholm, who was best friends with somebody in Florida. And he just remembers all that shit, you know, and he knows it. And he, and he makes such a good impression on people that they want to call him. So when they remember, oh, yeah, you said you knew this guy in Florida that he remembers. And they, it's just a thing. It's a talent, but it's a God-given talent and it's an effortless talent. I am between 
two and three years younger than Dan and Ben and three and four school years below them. So when Ben was graduating college, I was just graduating high school. And this is this is a kind of a big part of the dynamic of the band, honestly, because when you consider that my involvement with that band was from about 18 to 26, it was a big difference that I wasn't even 21 when Ben and Dan were already college graduates. And so there's a little bit of a big brother thing, you know, or more aptly a little brother thing where I was kind of the runt of <laughs> the litter. And I think I was, in a lot of ways, kind of brought in because of my um, four-track demos that I had made and just my kind of naivete. Ben had already been in bands, like playing in clubs and house parties. And, uh, you know, he had been to college gigs, and I was still in, like, Algebra 2 and four-tracking in my parents' basement played them some stuff that I made when I was still in high school and they were like oh damn that's pretty good my end was that I was kind of the kid who had like holed up in my bedroom writing little songs and starting the beginnings of kind of orchestrating little melodies and little arrangements and Ben was more the like out playing and performing he had no problem playing like acoustic guitar in a coffee shop or on campus and he was never shy about that. And Dan had been to like 100 times more shows than I had been to. So that was kind of the dynamic. Shy high school kid, outgoing college singer-songwriter, and like rabid music fan, uh, attending every concert, buying every album, buying every CD. That was kind of the three of us. Jamie was so like... I don't know. This is like a kind of natural arranger. He made the arrangements better. The he could play any instrument and add any. I know you're right here, Jamie. It sounds weird, but like <laughs> add any, you. but you know, add any kind of part could play anything. And when Jamie came in, our songs went from demos to like full pieces. Um, me and Dan and Jamie wrote a song together called Wheelie Ride. Jamie played the drums and we stayed up all night, like overdubbing on it and recording it. And it was like, it's still a really cool song. You should have put it on a great ice record. Writing this song called Wheelie Ride was sort of like this moment where we were, we saw that something we had done together was better than any of us could have done on our own and that we had to do this band. You know, we were just like, it was just kids dreaming about the music we could make together. With the intent of continuing to play music with one another, Donahue, Crum, and Huggins all eventually end up in Athens. Known for its vibrant music scene, which would give birth to a number of notable acts that would gain prominence in the 1980s, such as R.E.M., the B-52s, and Pylon, the musical community of Athens would experience a resurgence in the mid-90s, due in part to the arrival of bands associated with the Elephant Six Collective, such as Neutral Milk Hotel and the Olivia Tremor Control. Dan went to UGA, and I, for some reason, ended up going to Birmingham Southern College in Birmingham. But as soon as I graduated, I was sort of like, I had an English degree, and I was just like, I had to graduate. As soon as I did, I was like, I'm going to Athens, we're going to try to do this band, you know, it's like, when I, when I get there, it's like, we're going to do something that's like, really 
we thought it was going to be a real novel. You know, we're like we really want to do something that's like '60s inspired. When we first started playing, you know, it was like at our best, we sounded like a buzzy pop, like a Jesus and Mary Cheney or something like teenage fan clubby. Some, some like that's what we sound. Like. It was like very straight ahead. Things kind of fell in place as they should, and we weren't weird. We weren't weird enough at the time. I think we were doing what we like. Our initial stages, we were just kind of playing out like the high school dream, like the shit that me and Ben used to like listen to and talk about and go off about. What you know, we were just trying, kind of living up to those. And uh, I had, you know, I, I had been in Athens working at the record store and meeting all these people and being on the scene and just going to all the shows and working at the 40 watt and stuff. I've been best buddies with Andrew and making album covers for Elf Power and stuff. And there was, there was something going on and it was like, it was fucking crazy. You know, like Olivia Tremor Control and Neutral Milk, all those guys showed up and you could just feel it bubbling and everything was gonna break. playing those records for Jamie and Ben and they were like what and I'm like yeah that's happening like maybe a hundred and seventy feet from this house <laughs> like that record is happening I know I, I gave you full credit on opening that I mean we were trying to you know listen to bands from England or whatever uh, New York and then Dan was like let me just blow your minds and like thoroughly blew our minds. Like we sat, we didn't ask questions. We just sat and just listened all the way through Dusk at Cuba's Castle first time. And like totally stunned, completely in awe. Who the fuck is this? What is this? How is this possible? And Dan's like, oh yeah, they live like uh, two streets down. And we were just like, <laughs> no, you're lying. Like we were, I remember being I angry. Yeah. Like, like what I, are you talking about? How is this Jamie didn't believe me. I'm like, yeah, they're right. We could go talk to them if you wanted, you know? Like, he's like, he did not, it wasn't in his, like, you know, when you first hear something that blows your mind, first thing you don't think is, they're probably my neighbors, you know? Like, that just doesn't, that doesn't, that's not the first thing anyone ever yeah. thinks is like, oh, this is accessible. This is here. This is now. But I'll tell you, that set the bar right there more than any other band, for me, anyway. More than any of the Elephant Six bands. And I adore Robert and the Apples and the Neutral Milk Hotel, of course, Elf Power, everybody. But the recording, specifically the recording of Dusk at Cuba's Castle, hearing it before anyone knew really what it was, before it was even really officially released. You talk about how... Uh, you said that I came in and started making arrangements and expanding instrumentation and taking more chances on different instruments and being weird or whatever. 
that didn't I didn't just come from Dunwoody, Georgia with that from playing <laughs> in high score with the Chapmans. This was because I heard it from Olivia Trimmer control. I was like, shit, the bar has been, the gauntlet has been thrown. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. now then I had to figure all that out on the fly. I, I you know, most of the stuff that we did together was the first time that I'd ever done anything like that. I had never arranged a string part. I had never, uh, you know, layered multiple synthesizers. It was learning how to do it and giving and being given a space to do it. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you did sort of realize like, oh my God, you can do more and we will do more and let's do it right now. Inspired by the burgeoning scene's do-it-yourself spirit, the members of Great Lakes began working on material at home using analog recording equipment that Crum had acquired. All right, me and uh, Julian Coster drove to Atlanta, this place out in our Stone Mountain, I think Galaxy Music is what it's called. This is like before the internet is, you know, was what it was now. Like I had to call ahead. I was like, I'm looking for a half-inch A-track and a board. Do you have something like that that's in good condition? And how much is it kind of thing? And they're like, yes, we have this task now that it's X amount of dollars. I ended up, I'm not holding it against anybody, but I ended up like, personally financing like the whole studio gear and like all this i lived with the debt for years but anyway yeah i just went on a credit card bought all this stuff and uh i bought like the whole analog home studio set up and started recording the first thing i did was a little touched and uh so i just recorded that with jamie i think it's mostly just me and jamie on there i think andrew played a guitar solo at the end Eventually, we had other people overdub on it, but anyway, yeah, so we recorded that, like, 96, and then right after that, we did that song, uh, Parachutes, where Jamie and I took uh, two sections we'd each written, like, I wrote the main two parts, and he wrote the middle section that has the little multiple time signatures in it, and so then we were just, like, I remember at that point, we, we recorded that and then we did one, I can't remember what came next, but it was another one that had like, so parachutes had that real, I guess they both have a real overt sixties feeling, but a little touched with a little bit more of a rocker, I guess. But anyway, we did parachutes and there was a moment after doing parachutes, I feel like where the next thing I wrote was maybe music for easy life. And Dan put the lyrics to it. And then it was kind of this, Jamie and I had to kind of have this conversation like, okay, is this what we're doing? Like, are we going down a, the road of like making a really overt 60s pop record? And I was like, I guess so, because that's what I wrote, you know? It wasn't really like doing this contrived thing. It was just like, that was what I was listening to. That's where my brain was. We were listening to things from the 70s and the 60s almost exclusively. Absolutely anything that was made after 1976, which is when I was born, we would not consider even listening to ever. It wouldn't even be in our collections. There was nothing about listening to modern. Okay, now I say that, but of course we were listening to indie rock stuff like Guided by Voices and all the typical stuff. I remember Ben and Dan particularly were into Royal Trucks. We were all into Smog and we were all into Bell and Sebastian. Okay, that's different. I'm, I'm saying that we weren't listening to anything from 1977 until like 1992. <laughs> there was like a, a, a divide. That and the technology, but there was no question that we were going to do it by ourselves. And there's no idea that we could go into a studio. And even if we could pay for a studio, we didn't want to go into a studio. I will give Ben full credit for 
being the one to acquire the equipment and learn how to use it. As far as engineering the recordings in a technical sense, uh, setting up the chain of signal and the um, setup of all the gear and the, again, acquisition of all the gear was 100% Ben. When we first started recording, I was just like, okay, I'm going to play drums. And then I'll play a couple of these little things where they need to be. But that was a kind of a slow process and a long process to where I felt comfortable manning the controls. But even when I did kind of produce little moments of it, it was only because Ben had already set it up. And so like when he's saying, I would be the one controlling, you know, I'd be like, okay, are you ready? And hit record and then punch him in or whatever. And then when I was singing, he would do the same thing. But yeah, as far as producing, we all just shared a hand in that. Technical engineering, I will give uh, like 98% of that credit to Ben. Yeah, Ben, I felt like, you know, Ben is it was like super practical and realized that, me and Jamie might have been more on the dreamer side and he was definitely reading like tape op and, and doing the homework and and taking the extra 20 minutes to move the mics. Yeah, it, it sounds super crisp because he gave a shit. Greatly exemplifying the supportive nature of the scene's musical community, a number of Athens musicians, including members of Elf Power of Montreal, Neutral Milk Hotel, Japan Cakes, and the Masters of the Hemisphere, would lend their talents to the album's production. And being the community that it is, there is also an abundance of gear available to shape the record's unique sound. We had a really good collection of keyboards around the house. Not all of them belonged to us even our good friend todd kelly who we kind of played in the band off and on an awesome guy he had an amazing collection of old stuff he just brought like a dozen keyboards over so in our house at certain times we had like a the Wurlitzer piano that like was in my house growing up and we had a uh, a vox organ continental with the black keys we had a baldwin discoverer which is an amazing um organ type synth polyphonic thing that has a the coolest and most adjustable uh analog drum machine on it that i've ever heard you hear that on a bunch of uh great lakes tracks uh i used it for all my click tracks it was a great great because we built these those songs up track by track you know i would usually put the piano down first um to a click and i would use that baldwin discoverer drum machine that was amazing but the, uh a lot of the synth stuff that you hear is that univox uh, mini korg there was a cool baldwin synth it's like this i don't remember the number but it's designed to emulate the sound of all types of symphonic and orchestral instruments if you watch the last waltz you'll see garth hudson has one it's the keyboard that's like at a 45 degree angle kind of like you'll see him like playing it almost like behind his head all the marimba on the record is jamie that marimba belonged to our friend craig zobel um his mother had that and loaned that to us it was this beautiful like huge piece of furniture that was in our home and uh we we used it all over the record of course, you know, when you talk about gear with this record, like one of the main important things that was recorded on uh, two analog tape machines, you know, it was like a half inch eight track. It was a Tascam 38. And then there was a uh, 
we had a TIAC 40-4. It was just, it was just absolutely beautiful sounding. And um, we did a lot of like internal bouncing and then bouncing back and forth pre-machine. I had this uh, Bellari two-channel tube compressor that I had modded for like hi-fi uh, uh, program compression. I really got good at going back and forth between the two machines and getting uh, a nice like hi-fi, warm, present, but still bright sound. Early on, we discovered a few things. Uh, one was that I had a cheap little uh, Tascam M308 mixing board. It was designed to go along with the Tascam 38. And what we learned is that to maintain sonic integrity of our sounds, this, this, bo this board on each channel had an on-off for the EQ section. And we found that if you turned the EQ on, even turned it on, left everything right up the middle, it totally degraded the quality of the sound. Like it was just a really crappy EQ circuit. So what we learned is to be turned, we left that out of the circuit entirely. I think that's why they put an on-off switch there is because the, whoever designed it knew like this is a piece of crap EQ and we're going to let you turn it off. So we just like, if something needed to sound brighter or something needed to sound this way or that, it was all about microphone placement. We had a, uh, we had a bunch of microphones that my uh, friend bought from Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> we had a bunch of these uh, Sennheiser MD421s with a uh, bass roll-off switch. And you could get, if something was too bassy, just roll it back a notch, roll it back a notch. And it was, that was like one of our main cues. The other uh, real major uh, impact for the sound of the whole record was tape echoes, you know, and I had the most amazing condition, just perfect condition, really well taken care of Roland Space Echo, an RE-301. And um, there was a guy in Athens, um, he worked with Peter Fancher down there at the studio across from uh, the 40 watt named Otto. And Otto was like a whiz about these things, taught me something that nobody else ever told me was that these things sound best and stay in best condition if you use lubricated tape from the old uh, radio station carts. So I don't know if like in the 90s or maybe even the 80s too, in a radio station, they would transfer the songs to these little things that were sort of like A-track machines, except they had this lubricated quarter-inch tape in them, had this natural lubricant on it that made it run over this head smoothly and kept the heads in clean shape. So I was really lovingly took care of this space echo. I would clean the heads every single time I used it. And it was like, I never left it running for a session. I would only turn it on when we wanted to use it because there's a limited amount of life in that tape, you know? So then I would turn it back off. So I kept that thing really maintained well. And with all that, they made a record.
Great Lakes opens with Storming, a dreamy slice of sophisticated pop. Featuring a well-balanced mixture of ethereal sounds, including cellos, horns, and slide guitar, Storming acts as the perfect introduction to the sound of this record, as well as the scope of this band's ambitions. Storming, I guess I remember that we all agreed was a great opening track, because it has that great sort of mysterious intro with Tyler on the cello, and I don't feel like it's immediately representative of the band and the sort of psychedelic leaning pop rock sort of sound that you're about to hear because it's an acoustic guitar and a kind of weepy cello. It's in three, four. It starts out with this kind of like, not sad, but slightly down tempo waltz feel. And I think that that's kind of cool because it's not just, you know, bursting onto the scene with like a big rock number right out of the gate and it gives a little bit of a breath kind of like dipping your toe in the water but i think it's cool because it has some of the bigger contributions of the more uh pop orchestral type instrumentation right on the first song which is heather makatashi on the cello uh that gives us kind of a little bit of credibility because <laughs> it's not a synthesizer and it sounds like a real instrument being played by someone competent. Then you have the big horn blast from Scott Swain and we doubled and tripled and I think maybe even quadrupled his horns. He doesn't have a whole lot of um, uh, just typical rock trappings of like, oh, I know what this band sounds like. It's, and I just think it makes like a nice entry. It was the last song written for the record, and it was intentionally written as an opener. I was trying to write something. I didn't have an opener. So I had it written as just that basic waltz song, the that main part. But I wanted to have sort of like, you know, like the beginning of, uh, I guess it's Care of Cell 44. It's just a little figure that's not part of the song. Um, and there's, I guess there's a Beatles song or two that has something like that, but I just wanted to like do a little introductory figure. Like that was a, a songwriting note that I had taken from some of my heroes that you kind of make a little announcement. It's just like a setup, like it kind of encapsulates some of the, uh, the, you know, the players, the, like sonic players you're going to hear, like Heather's cello is beautiful there. And, uh, Everything's just drenched in echo like that. And then Kevin Barnes played that slide part. I had recorded it initially on a uh, just regular guitar, trying to like cop some sort of like George Harrison, all things must pass kind of feeling. It was like almost too country or something. Like I just didn't want it to be like that. And Kevin doesn't have like a country influenced bone in his body at all. So when he played the slide, it took on like more of a experimental thing, put a bunch of echo on that slide and, and there you go. So that song kind of mournful sounding with an uplifting tone. I don't know. Uh, it was about like kind of coming to terms with someone you love, like moving on. I wanted to like show up and be a this sort of beautiful winter night instead of some terrible rainstorm. You know, like I want to show up and be there for you now, but without being a cloud, like some sort of negative thing. Because you're young and you're all romantic and you get, you have your like first loves and then those don't work out. 
and you don't know what to do with yourself. You've not been prepped for like that kind of experience, or I wasn't. But yeah, it is definitely. I think more. Of, I, I want to show my face, but I don't want to be angry. About it. I want to like like this new life you have, and you know, it was wishful thinking. It's hard to like someone's new life when you're not in it. One fun thing about it that sticks out to me is the big crescendo ending. You know, Jamie played that synthesizer line. Heather did that really, she just layered it track by track to do the cello. And it's really subtle, but it's this thing that's in there that gives it this feeling like, I, on that, using that little Univox chord synth, I hit a C note and it would be a high, and I'd play it from a certain point on the ending to the end and just hold it there all the way through, just a C ringing all the way through. And then I would like add the other triad notes in the chord, and then an octave, and then I would start adding like other, you know, like white keys, like the D and the A, and the, you know, eventually I'd get to more dissonant ones like the B and the B flat and the, you know, C sharp. And eventually I had like 12 or 15 tracks of me just playing all these notes, and I'd add them one at a time as I went. And it just had this like sort of day in the life kind of like crescendo, like cacophony thing. Nick's pretty low in there, but. Some people might not think it's exciting, but to me it had like a sort of like, oh God, what's happened? You know, there's, there's this like building feeling and it's subtle that it just happened uh, to work. Um, that was a fun, fun little trick to, uh, it feels like a very Beatles, very emo kind of thing. The expertly executed psychedelia of A Little Touched contains all the markings of a truly great pop song, a catchy melody, concise arrangement, and an interesting sounding recording with just the right amount of weirdness to set it apart. Is a you know southern expression meaning like kind of crazy or something. Um, it wasn't really about anyone in, in particular, but it was sort of like a imagined ideal woman, I think maybe or something at the time. I don't know. I was just a kid and I was writing it. I imagined like you're a little crazy, like you're obsessed. That's why I say I got the headphones on. It's all too much. Like you're, I I was obsessed with all too much. I love the idea of like finding a a partner, a woman who also just... That song, especially, I feel like it's very Ben, and he references the George Harrison song, It's All Too Much, which is the best Beatles song. Sorry, everybody. You know, like, that's the best Beatles song. You can stop your list. You can, all you 
Internet journalist can retire. It's the best Beatles song. George wins. I'll stand by it. I want pe- I want people to come at me with that one. Come at me. Come on. Come home. Come true. Let's do this. Let's go. The bridge, I remember when you used to send us songs and letters. It used to say, I remember when you used to send us pretty flowers. This is just some nonsense. And that was the line that Dan changed to, to like cleverly insert himself into it, which I think was like kind of awesome. You know, it's like we used to exchange songs back and forth. I was in Birmingham and he lived in uh, Athens. I remember one time. Even like I was, I was at home or something, and Ben had literally dropped off like a letter at my parents' house. Like I think I was supposed to come home that weekend, you know, or something, and it didn't work out or whatever. So he wound up writing a letter and leaving it at my parents' house, and that's where that came from. He stuck that little bit in there, which is good, you know. It connects it to the rest of the record in a way that's fun and smart and sort of like a little wink, you know. I like that about Dan stuff, like it works on multiple levels. At least in my memory, I'll give credit where it's due. That snare sound, I think we were trying desperately, as much as we could, to rip off and recreate the sound of the Olivia Trimmer control, particularly on first song on Cuba's Castle, the opera house. It's so lo-fi, and we tried so hard to get that. How I ultimately got it was to run the overhead microphone through a four track and get the level kind of hot and get that like, that like, it's almost like a piece of paper. And then it went into the tape machine. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I bounced it with a little slapback echo on it. So you'd get, it was another Beatles thing, you know, it's just like slapback on everything. From Elvis to the Beatles and everything, it's just Sun record slapback on everything makes it richer and more classic sounding immediately cuts off a little of the treble and just i don't know there's just some magical thing that happens that makes everything sound like a classic record when you put tape echo on it and you don't screw it up you don't screw it up by eqing too much i don't know it's about like placing the mic in the right place i can tell you that we had made a version of that song just a few months before we had heard uh olivia trimmer control and it sounded like a straight up like rock song no bells and whistles or anything that sounded uh, we used to perform that before we had even moved to town back in birmingham and i was going to say that's one of the oldest songs because we had that one fully arranged and written and had played it live at least you know several times and then when we did the recording it became a little bit more of a kind of a collage pop you know it has a rock through line with the drums and guitar and bass but there's little things that happen, you know, that are definitely uh, influences from the kind of pop art as pop song from the more psychedelic stuff like uh, the Who Sell Out and probably also immediately from Olivia Trimmer Control. I can't say it enough. They blew our minds and we really quickly ripped them off and not ripped them off. You know, it was like a tribute or like, did that. That's so cool. I want to do this shit. Like in the best way. I just like tricks for getting the bass sound at the time. I had this old uh, 
electroharmonic Civil War era big muff. It's the gray and blue one. It had terrible bypass. It didn't have true bypass. It uh, it sounded cool as a fuzz pedal, but when you turned it off and you're playing guitar through it, your clean sound sounded ridiculous. Sounded awful. It would just like knock all your high end off, and it had this weird compressed thing. But as it turned out, that was perfect uh, for bass. Uh, I would I would plug into the big muff without turning it on. And it cut the high end out of the bass signal so I, I didn't get that rattly sound of strings on the fret. It was like really hyper compressed. So when I played the bass on a little touch, I just played it through the, the big muff with off. I, uh, I don't think I had invested in a compressor yet. Um, I think I got that like by the time we did pitch. Yeah, that was a trick on that. some of the album's best lyrics. The bouncy, music hall-inspired track, An Easy Life, consists of layers of ornate instrumentation, which enhance the solid foundation built by Crumb's stately piano. For whatever reason, I feel like that song is uh, all about Ben and Dan's perfect collaboration, and I really feel like I'm just playing to the track on that. Not a whole lot of personal investment, but it's a great song. Only reason I say that is because I remember them writing it and Ben playing piano and Dan sitting there with a notebook back and forth, changing lyrics, changing melodies. And I remember just kind of watching that happen. And this is while I was very much settling into my role. Where do I fit in this triangle? And on that one, I just sort of have a general sense of kind of keeping my mouth shut, which is probably not true starts with that backwards thing like we actually flipped the tape over and recorded a whole bunch of sort of like psychedelic sounds from that one moment and so they would as they decay that's the beginning of the sound when you flip it back over so it just comes up from nothing and hits to that one point and i timed it with the uh with the start of the piano part so it had that it's very like the, something off of Sergeant peppers i guess scott Lane played the horns and uh he didn't have a lot of time. He just came in and he played a little something. He was just like grumpy and not really in the mood. He played something and he gave me like two passes or three passes. Just tried some ideas. They weren't really like exactly right for the song, but I took little sections and I copied them to the DAT machine. And um, I, it's so time consuming. It's hilarious. I think I had to do this like before there was, uh, computer editing, but I would start recording on the tape machine and have my finger on the play button of the DAT and have to like get used to the amount of time the DAT would take to start before it would start playing. And <laughs> I'd have to like cue it up right where I wanted it to be. I look at the numbers on the counter and like I copied the uh, horns into the chorus of that, like and created that, you know, arrangement. I mean, Scott's playing, of course, you know, but I just like stuck them where they 
were just I got a little bit lucky and I don't know that's how that happened it wasn't like a human decision to do that it was like a little bit more to chance I really like the um the bass on it you know that is uh our friend Joel Evans uh he used to play in the Apples and Stereo and then he moved to Athens and um he was like really playing with us was sort of like hilariously beneath him in a kind of awesome way he was just like you losers you're never gonna make anything good you know but he was funny about it you know and he but he would play bass a really good uh ideas bass player but he wasn't like all about technical efficiency so it took him forever to get the take even though he came up with all those cool parts but um that was him and the cool thing is he sings like that you can hear his voice go like Easy life and that little breakdown thing. I always, I always like hearing his voice there because he was such a big part of this record in terms of the personality of the bass playing. Even though I had to sort of drag him kicking and screaming, um, not I mean I exaggerate, but like sort of it was like I kind of had to pull teeth to, to get him to do it a little bit. There was this clock, the Azan clock, and I may be getting into scandalous territory here because I purchased this clock I think in New York and it was just like a little plastic uh, battery powered clock that had this alarm there was this what i thought was just this really interesting kind of foreign sounding uh melody but it turns out years later that i think it might have been like a muslim call to prayer or a muslim prayer that they would broadcast or pray to in the morning i really don't want to say too much because i don't know and i don't want to offend anybody but there was this melody that came out that there was like uh, and I thought it was cool, and I realized, oh my god, it's in the key, Ben, it's in the key, and you're like freaking out. So we ran through the space echo, and it comes in during that bridge. It's really prominent. In terms of the like lyrics of that, I, I feel like that's one of the uh, one of my favorite uh, lyrics on the rest. Sort of like critical of people with like just double lives. Our attitude was like, you know, like just flying by for these people. They're not doing anything worthwhile. I guess it's like our death of a salesman or something. I don't know. You know, I think like any amount of talking that I've already done would probably set up like, yeah, I was like a big daydreamer did not understand uh life in any way you know like that idea of setting yourself up for doing one thing the rest of your life that whole part about your costumes on the carpet oh i gotta dress this way for the show and i have to dress this way to go work at the video store the next day and i have to dress this way to do this it's absurd. I mean, the way you break down anything, any everything becomes absurd. That line about, like, no one pushed a button and nothing happened, and, like, we're all okay. But, you know, the idea that, like, we've built this system <laughs> that we, like, fulfill, and weirdly enough, it's just, it's this whole, like, where we are now in our lives and the, the COVID and stuff that it's actually, like, it's just breaking down what is even necessary. Is college necessary? 
Is marriage necessary? Is going to, you know, Target three times a week necessary? You know, like all these things that we like do to fill the hours and stuff. It took like a pandemic for us to question, I think, is, is this all worth it? Or is this even make sense? And I feel like I've been that way since I was about four years old. Even though I do have like a day job and shit like that, I just never thought uh, we perfected life. We did this to ourselves. This wasn't like someone else didn't show up and say, like, you got to do this. We did this. We like Cubans willfully like bought into this shit. <laughs> We've perpetuated it for thousands of years. I, I, I still don't understand it. I still think the song is valid because I don't get it. You know, I'm still, every day I still wake up and, uh, you know, I'm still trying to carve out the time to just daydream. the track Become the Ship, another number that greatly benefits from a smart arrangement and ample amounts of sonic candy. And much like the previous track, the production is once again held together by Crumb's steady work on keys. I was going for like a, one of those almost like musical like kinks and Beatles kind of like when they do the old fashioned kind of stuff, I guess, but uh, I don't really have any technique on the keyboards, but I, I'm able to I just bang on it. I'm able to achieve that feeling at least. I don't know. I don't like, uh, I don't, I don't really love my piano playing on it, but I guess it's like, it's suitable for, for what it is. I'll tell you what I'll, I'll call his piano playing executive piano, meaning that I feel like he built the house, you know, made the framework. And then very often I was putting in furniture and Dan was designing windows. And so uh, maybe those kind of bones and mortar of the whole thing holding it up could go unnoticed to some or maybe to him, but not to me, especially with a lot of hindsight. All of the little sparkles and things that I put on there, there was no place to hang them if there wasn't a house. And he was very good at building houses. Jamie had this amazing ability on keys to like actually play something genuinely soulful you know it's, it can be really hard to get that sort of like i don't know sort of corny turn to like greasy like soul feel you know like booker t he, he's that lick he plays at the beginning is like genuinely like a 
gospel soul kind of feel. And um, yeah, so anyway, that's that Vox uh, Continental. For whatever reason, and I don't know why, I didn't find any of those keyboard parts uh, a labor in any way. And what I do find really hard to do is play uh, two-handed chords and bass parts, which Ben could always do so perfectly. And he got that from learning piano from his mother playing in the Methodist hymn style. And I was always jealous of that. And my mother was also a choir director in the Baptist choir. <laughs> and I don't know what it is, but there was something about like a particular style of playing with two hands on the keyboard and a lot of movement in the left hand, or even if it's just octaves in the left hand, and a lot of movement in the right hand, I couldn't do it. But for me, hitting uh, those kind of little funky intervals that I attribute to listening to uh, Booker T and that kind of stuff, for whatever reason, was easy for me. And so when Ben and Dan thought it was cool, something like, I just did some little thing and they were like, oh man, no, that's great. Do that, do that, do that, do that, do that, do that, do that. I'm like, are you serious? This isn't too much? Ben, like, do it again. I'm like, doop, 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 Just keep going all the way. I'm like, there's no more keys. I can't do it anymore. But to me, I remember thinking it was kind of funny that like this seems really almost silly uh, to be putting that kind of style on this song. But in the end, I do think that it worked, and it was because of those two things. As again, it's like bread on the butter. People do things differently, and one person adds this, the other person adds that, and hopefully it works out. And of course, the thing that I did. I would think is pretty natural. And of course, the thing that Ben did, he would think is pretty natural. And isn't that what makes things interesting? That was like maybe one of the more psychedelic head trippy ones mm-hmm. that I was on. The one line, like all the barnacles become the ship. Like to me, that was like, that was the crux of the song. Obviously we used it for the title, <laughs> but you know, it's like the idea that like stuff around you will like stick to you things you do, the people you are around, the scene, the world around you. It's going to be a weight on you. It's going to be a thing. You're going to have to deal with it. But also, it's going to become a part of you. So you should sort of kind of go into it with that idea that everything that's around you, good or bad, it's going to like... It's you. It's now you. All of it. Which... At the time, being around all these amazing artists and musicians and just creative people, I wanted to hang on to everybody and I wanted everyone to hang on to me. I took the sound effects on that one from a popular director's film who has now been shamed, if not canceled. And I really don't want to get into any libel about this particular Jewish filmmaker from Manhattan. But he made a certain film and it had this just perfect seaside thing to it. And I was like, we got to sample this. So I took the VHS tape of this film and hooked up the RCA outputs into the board. I remember Ben helping me do this, and I was like, just trust me, just trust me. He was like, uh, okay. I I remember him being slightly uh, 
maybe annoyed that I was like, and I probably was doing it at the wrong time, you know, like it was probably two in the morning or something, but I insisted, we got to put this in there. And so again, we ran up to the space echo and it's a beach seaside, uh, seagulls and waves and stuff. And, uh, we ran it in and flew it in. And of course it added something totally different, magical and, uh, unusual to the track. Once I was a boy shouting at the sea, here I am. That actually happened. That was at Sweden with the Olivia Tremor Control. We played a show on um, this island. But anyway, long story short, it was that we stayed at this, like... Gotland. Gotland, thank you. It was Gotland. Yeah. And it was an like, artist community. Like, I went out and, like, skinny dipped with these old hippie dudes. And, like, they gave me a rock. Markings on the rock looked like a smiley face. And he was like, here, have this rock. The rock can be happy for thousands of you. You can be happy, too. And I was like, what is going on? It was great. You know, it's like this weird thing. And so we were, like, walking back from the water. And one of the artists had made this megaphone that was pointed at the ocean. And you can talk to the ocean or whatever. That was the concept. And there was a kid who I have a dictaphone recording of it somewhere who was shouting over and over and over this phrase into the megaphone it was awesome I was, and i recorded it and i asked one of the hippie dudes like i was like what is he saying and it, and he's like here i am of course he's saying here i am you know so i was like well duh of course that's what he's saying i knew that and he was just like gleefully shouting this to the ocean and i was you know completely blown away and that made it into the song World's Fair Part 1 is a brief musical interlude and the Elephant Six equivalent to the short snippets that bands like Pavement and Guided by Voices would often put between songs. Most pop songs, they need a, the very least, they need an A and a B part, right? I didn't have even a B part for this thing. I just had a little thought, put it down and recorded it for five minutes and overdubbed on it and got the other folks to overdub on it. So it was just like a little mood, you know? Like, I don't know. I feel like the record needed that for a sense of flow. I remember Ben created that whole organ and bass line going together, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do. All I remember doing was the boom, <laughs> I just put some percussion on it and I agreed that it was cool and I think that we all just kind of thought that should be on there as well as easy decisions you know it wasn't like a labored over thing in my memory it was just kind of that's cool do you have any more lyrics or want to make it a thing no let's just keep that let's just do that for a little while and we chose the best 40 seconds of it and said there it is it's a palate cleanser it's a ginger in the sushi dish to me i like the title because it was kind of the extension of the easy life thing about like the world not being fair but also like it was kind of you know fascinated by any of those like old weird films about the world's fair, you know, just this yeah. idea, this is the next world and everything's going to be fabulous. And that has such a like dreamy otherworldly thing about it to me where it was just like, Oh, this is, this is a vision of the future that will never come true. 
the World's Fair vibe to me is like, there's elements of the past, but it doesn't sound like the past. Home and Come True is a skillfully crafted indie pop gem with a structure and arrangement truly befitting the song's lyrical matter. Written about a situation of geographical push and pull, the track effortlessly shifts from a laid-back southern groove to sounds evoking the faster pace of big city living. Well, I just uh, sat down and wrote the music on the piano and it just felt natural to do the sort of thing of those changes where it's like in the key of C but it's got the you know the major three and the major six chords major two chord in it too it has that sort of like old-timey kind of feeling and I was always I'm always, I'm always a sucker for those sort of like descending and baseline kind of things where I was just like walking around the bass is just like cruising around in this like cyclical thing so I sort of had planned that out in the writing of the music to me what stands out about uh come home come true is that there is this kind of like dreamy quality again kind of an ethereal there's a lot of top end really bright instruments on it but it's not uh mostly synth driven or guitar driven uh there are lots of uh actually acoustic instruments which makes a huge difference so like i'm playing the marimba there's the auto harp which has that little zing to it. I have the actual auto harp. I played that on right here. I'm sure it's horribly out of tune, but something like this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, running that through the space echo. Again, it's like a bright acoustic sound. So there's like wood and strings and then... Uh, there's a harmonica. There's a lot of percussion. One of the percussion things I did on that was a spatula that I stole from working at uh, a really popular chain pizza restaurant, which I, again, for legal reasons, can't mention. But it had this great kind of like bing quality to it. And then I remember another thing was a stack of cymbals. I wasn't hitting the cymbals with a stick or a mallet. I was dropping a hi-hat cymbal into a stack of other cymbals. So it just went... And then the most beautiful example of this acoustic uh, ethereal but not electronic element to that recording is Donnie Alexander on the double clarinets. Okay, so all those things, the, the clarinet, the marimba, the auto harp, the harmonica, the percussion, again, these are all things that have air in them. And because of that, and the piano itself, of course, the, the upright acoustic piano, you know, th- this track has this feeling where it, it deceptively feels like this uh, almost ambient track. It's like six or eight wood and metal 
instruments that are being played in real time in the air. And I think that makes a huge difference from the sound of a rock record. I mean, obviously. But uh, yeah, I think that song is special too because it has those distinct two halves. There's the whole front half of the song. And then when it abruptly makes that change, it doesn't feel like, like a jarring. It just feels like this sudden, like, click, like you just switched the channel. You know, and there's a brief bit about the running on rooftops and then switches again. And it's kind of like this three part little uh, sweeping movement that's all one thing. It doesn't feel like it's uh, cobbled together like a collage that doesn't fit, but they just work. Yeah, you know? I don't know what else to say. It just works. Once again, it's just the soft, gentle, psychedelic feeling of it is all really a creation of uh you know a analog tape but b really that tape echo effect you know just all, different amounts of tape echo on everything that give you that kind of warm soothing soft easy to listen to kind of sense but the funny thing about that is there's so many scraps in it you know it's like so many things were mixed with all the echo on it we had sub so many times, bounced back and forth, ping pong, gone back and forth between the four track and the eight track, which I started doing not because I had to get more tracks that way, but because I realized once I tried to transfer to that old, it was a 60s TAC 40-4, that was in really good shape, and they would just make everything like magically glisten and have this incredible, like the, the 38, the Tascan 38 was like a workhorse of a machine, but no one's going to say it's like the greatest sounding machine. But the TAC was just, it would just sparkle. And then I would transfer from that to the A-Track and keep going. So that, I feel like Come Home Come True was maybe one of the first ones where I figured out that the TAC had that effect. And I feel like you could hear it on there. So Come Home and Come True was uh, definitely me sort of wrestling with the idea that I was having to sort of make choices that I didn't think I was going to have to really make as far as like choosing to stay in Athens and make music versus going to New York and being with like my partner at the time and pursuing like an art life and me wanting to not have to make that choice and have the other person sort of like, Hey, you want, you want to wait for me? You want to do what I want to do? So it was like, sort of begging them to come and be with me even though i knew that that wasn't right for them like they needed to go and do that and i need to be here and trying to make that argument in song <laughs> to, to come home and come true you know make my dreams come true forget your dreams what about me you know <laughs> that's basically the young romantic in me was very selfish uh, <laughs> That's so interesting because I never knew that at all. And it's also interesting that this one also has come home, come true, and then Storming has come 
but not come storming. There's that same double come, 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 come. It is about <laughs> arrival. <laughs> arrival. Yeah, arrival. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also become the ship. Like, I wanted yeah. to be something. I wanted something to, like, you know, take hold. And uh, and with the record, it did. I mean, we did, you know, we made it a reality. We made the, the daydream. Come, come, the, come, come, become. Become, yeah. Yeah, I guess it was a theme. I didn't really, I never noticed it myself, but yeah. A Banana is a multi-layered instrumental inspired by British songwriter and Soft Machine founding member Kevin Ayers. Title comes from the Kevin Ayers philosophy that he called bananaism, which is like when you're working on a piece of art, you gotta throw in something that's just really out of nowhere. <laughs> throw in the banana. So that was actually supposed to be the banana in the middle of the record. Kevin Ayers put out this album called The Joy of a Toy. And the story was that he recorded a whole studio album of these songs, and then it didn't turn out the way he wanted it. And he wanted to, to remix them or go with a different label or something. And the label took the tapes and either permanently burned them or hid them or took them or something. The legend is that he then checked into some hotel in London and bought all these toy instruments and a brought in an 8-track and just recorded the whole album again using kind of like toy or non-professional instruments. And in an interview that I read, he mentioned how every song should have like a little moment of insanity. And he said he'd call it a banana. You know, just a little bit of madness is what he would say. So like if there's a strange little jazz part that's out of tune or a sudden sound that only comes in once and is never repeated, he would call that a banana. Anyway, he said something like it was a philosophy of his during every song to have something that was absurd or just a bit mad that would stand out and only happen once. And he called this a banana. And so it could just be a mistake. But in this one particular track, and I'm pretty sure it's called Town Feeling, at one point toward the end of the song, he just simply says, banana. And we all thought it was hilarious. And having had read the interview, uh, it had gone from just a little idiosyncratic moment in the song to just flat out saying the word banana for no reason in the middle of the track and loudly in the mix so we thought okay that's cool it's fine we all enjoyed the story it was really cool i got to play with kevin Ayers in new york later you know like prepping his uh final record and i told him about that song and he was like at first dismissive, but then he like came back the next day and he's like, you know, no, no one ever responded to uh, to that in that way, you know. It was, it was a, he didn't have a lot to say about it, but it was fun to get to tell him about it.
Inspired by an experience that occurred while Donahue was on tour with the Olivia Tremor Control, the dreamy and lush parachutes includes intricate instrumental interplay that successfully invokes the wistfulness present in the song's lyrics. That was definitely written in Sweden when I was over there kind of traveling with the Olivia dude. We were going to all these like festivals in the forest and these aren't like Coachella festivals. These are like like people in tents, like washing their clothes in a lake. Woodstock 69 looking like festivals, you know, it was and there was just this like freedom in Sweden anywhere where it just feels free like it just you don't feel the puritanical oppression in everything people just throw off their clothes and jump in the water and so I think that was like my reaction to like experiencing that culture and the like freedom of of these young people kind of living in a way that like Americans just can't like a person could come up and like, just like kiss you and like make out with you and drink wine with you and run around. And then she could go home with her boyfriend because that's Sweden. There was no hang ups. There was no inhibitions there was not a sense of possession or jealousy or anything weird it was just like i like you you're pretty i will kiss you you want to dance that was fun i want to dance with this other person now good night and that that's not america it's not like i don't know like that was sort of pervasive that wasn't just one occurrence it was just like how i felt about how all that was going on around me at these festivals and communes and things that we were visiting. So there was like this freedom and maybe my sort of like overwhelmed was like, oh, wow, you don't have like, this is, this is different. This is new. So that's kind of what Parachute is about. Like, it's just like having someone come up and like be completely magical and you're like, whoa, this, you know, and then realize that that is, they're just in a moment and you're with them in that moment and that moment doesn't have to last forever. It's just, it's a parachute to like get you to the ground. I think this is one of our best recordings parachutes because uh, we were trying really hard. This is like one of the first things we did. I remember taking it really seriously and getting the violin at the beginning as our friend Adrian Finch and getting that uh, exactly right. I think we probably spooked him because he was like, you guys really want me to do this this long? And we're like, yeah, please, another one. And he's like, really? <laughs> I feel like we put him through like 16 takes in my memory. I could be wrong. Adrian, yeah, I love Adrian. Oh, man, I wonder what he's up to now. I haven't talked to him in years. God, he's a natural musician and a super sweet guy. We were trying to get it exactly right. And then to transition into that, <clears throat> you know, there's that big, <clears throat> I dreamed you were... That kind of like uh, letting go and letting down, which, you know, just again, 
works with the the lyric and the feeling of the song, which is something that Dan did well. You know, like if he communicated something, he would really like act it out and stand up and use his arms and be like, you know, it's got to be like it's got to be like a parachute, and it's like as if you're like falling down. And you're dri- you know, he really drive that home to communicate what he wanted the music to sound like. And even if he wasn't able to go to any instrument and just uh, say it's like this, play like this, he would describe it really really well like in a genuine producer way that's why i feel like dan is unsung as one of the producers of this album he absolutely produced these songs jamie wrote that middle section with the like that was a whole thing we decided to insert in there like the little dream sequence part that organ is um one of those old home organs it was not like a a really nice lowry but i do think it was a lowry it was like just a a corny little Lowry with a built-in tube amp and speaker. So yeah, Jamie's playing that for that middle section along with a, we had this enormous uh, Farfisa that um, was Dan's. That's in there too. It seems like it would be really simplistic and plodding to have that acoustic piano come in and I guess it's just enough to let your brain tap into it. That was kind of like just luck. You know what? The way I did that is I, I had the click track running throughout the middle section, not in time with the middle section. Jamie didn't play to the click track, like, but I just left it on its own track. And we got to that part, and um, I had Jamie record his organ, the main organ part, which we could later overdub on, but it's just the main thing that held the place of all the music there. So he played that without the click track and his headphones. After he had played it, I could pull it back up. I put it back up, and it was conflicting with what he was playing, of course. But like as his final notes were decaying, it was in there, and I could start the piano to that and come in like that. I mean, that's that's so crazy to think about. But I'm saying this, and it's like it's funny because you would never do that with modern like computer recording stuff. Back then, it was like I didn't know another way. You know, I would use these like analog drum machines as the click track, and uh, it's like. One of the positive, you know, one of the upsides is like limitations. Yeah, you paint yourself into these corners and it lends you to do things that maybe seem more creative or more original than if you had done something truly on purpose. It's the sound of the sky that makes him shake, reminds him of the sound the giants make, scrambling as the footsteps gain. Fall inside her The child draws the jungle And it's tigers The black stripes licking fur Like fire As we near the end of the record We get the sweetly nostalgic Giants and Tigers There's still something poking Underneath Softly sharp like tigers about to bite what's out of reach She sets her boy down in the swing Pushes him up to look down on everything The giants cannot catch him now Even with their heads above the clouds It's my senior year of college, spring 1996 I snuck into the college chapel of Birmingham Southern College in the middle of the night and they had a giant pipe organ 
and I sat there and I wrote the uh, music for um, what would become Giants and Tigers. I wrote that on a pipe organ in the middle of the night by myself, and it was just sounded amazing to me. It's really like later I came to realize it's just some sort of like reworking of like the Pachelbel Canon or something like that. It's a simple little uh, ditty of a tune, but it has a lot of heart, you know. It has like the, the sweetness of the sentiment, the sort of like epic kind of like stretching, soaring nature of that little melody. Is it was the kind of song that when we played it live with a big band, people would always kind of corner me afterward and say how touched they were, you know, and made them think of like childhood and a loving mother and stuff like that. So I think that's nice, uh, nice bit of Dan's writing. That song was written about a childhood home in Wisconsin. I lived behind my school, which was in this big city park. All my childhood things happened in this one place. You like I learned how to ride a bike. It was actually about my mom. Because I was a very anxious child, you know. I think I was definitely uh, a little touched or something. You know, I was overly sort of agitated. And, like, I cried when they took the trash away. I don't know why. Like, I had this weird, like, kind of attachment and detachment issues as a little kid. And so going over to the park... And my mom pushing me on the swing was very calming and just sort of, you know, one of those things where, you know, if you, you know, you got to grab one last thought before you go, I would probably think about like kicking my feet up to the sky when I was a kid and thinking that I was going to keep going. And that was just sort of like the Giants and Tigers were like all the crazy beers childhood fears that manifest themselves and things and stuff and just how you know that simple idea of like you know you're trusting somebody you're kind of you know it's kind of scary to be on a swing but then it feels really good especially when you know that the person who's pushing you is going to be there so that's that's what that one's about Following Giants and Tigers is the track World's Fair Part 2, which is a continuation of the musical interlude that appears earlier in the album. Much in the same way that Part 1 worked with Come Home and Come True, World's Fair Part 2 acts as a nice segue into the penultimate track, the whimsical psychedelic pop of Posters for the Theater. Down upon 
I wanted to write a song about, like, you know, in the 60s, they were so into the Art Nouveau. It was like time traveling. When you think about the 60s, they were like romancing eras before and like the stuff that was in their thrift stores and like the books they looked at at the time. Nouveau was the psychedelic era for them. If they were looking back, you know, like, look at how terrible the 50s look. I'm sorry, anybody who really fetishizes that, you know, but like there was no romance in the atomic age. All the 60s posters, the record covers and stuff, they were all like going back to that really lyrical, linear type and, you know, the you know, just that era of design. And so the posters for the theater and stuff was just like me, like reminiscing about people reminiscing and how there's always a thread through the past that, you know, one can find themselves in. And we were sort of finding that in the 60s and they were finding it earlier. And those people were referencing who knows what, you know, so there's just like connecting yourself to the sort of eternity of that, the eternity of style and how it's still, it makes people feel romantic, sort of nostalgic. There's always an idea that what happened before you was better than where you are now. And I was always trying to explore that. And to me, that was a more clinical exploration of that idea. I was looking at some book about chord progressions and like there was like a whole, it was like a whole like one inch thick music theory book that I came across like at a thrift store. It was just all about the two five one progression, like a whole giant book about the two five one progression. I was like, what in the world? Like I didn't know anything about theory or really, but I, I was a sort of a junkie for like chord progressions, you know, it's always like yeah. the way that would strike, create a mood, you know, and um, as you can see, I use the minor four, the Beatles chord all over the record because I was, I always love the feeling of that. But the opening section is just, I was like, what's the two five one, you know, I added a little suspend and release, but used that just because I saw it was a thing you were supposed to do. <laughs> like, it was a thing that musicians did. So I was like, okay, I'll do, I'll have a two five one. I've never written a two five one before. So many people like talking about that horn part and how that hooked them and how much they liked it. That was another one that uh, Scott just did like two or three passes really quick. And I had to copy them onto the DAP machine and fly them into the locations where they went. And he was like kind of amazed when it came back and he was featured so heavily. He didn't even remember that he had done so much on it. And I was like, well, you didn't really. I, I just recorded everything you did and I saved it all. And I, which was weird because nowadays you, um, you know, with computer recording, it's endless takes, whatever. But th those days I had eight tracks. So when I wanted to record with Scott, I had to be ready with open three tracks. So if he was coming to my house to record, I didn't erase anything he did. I would have two tracks and everything he did would be on the other. Like, I doubt he would ever fill up. I wouldn't let him fill up six. I'd let him fill up maybe four so I could still bounce or have some room to play. But 
I would save everything he did. And then later I would try to fly it around and piece it together and make it into uh, something. I feel like maybe with this one, he'd heard what I did on uh, easy life. And he, after I, after he nailed it like once or twice, he was like, you can just fly them into the right places. Right. I gotta go. And at the time I felt like, yeah, I guess I can, you know, I'll do that. But that's Scott's whole thing. He's like, yeah, I'll do this one. It's either gold or, you know, fuck it. You know, like he's got a real acerbic, but like comically acerbic attitude about all things musical. Yeah. I'd be like, it's fucking great. What's your problem? You don't like it? Do it yourself. You know, it's it's like, but just can you please do it one more time, please? He stuck it out, though. And a lot of that was just like him kind of like egging us on. Getting the Scott Spillane horn parts onto that record the way you hear them was absolutely a wrestling match, like hard to the mat between Scott, me, Ben, the tape machine, and the actual euphonium itself. You know, it was it was not easy, but the results speak for themselves. We love, 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 love Scott. Yeah, that's that's that Univox mini chord synth again. It's the analog synthesizer with that like the filter and the traveler set with that really bright high. Uh, Jamie played that again. Jamie was great at those little like candy overdubs that were just like a great catchy little hook. And again, like his personality as a keyboard player is a little bit more soulful, you know. Yeah. Great Lakes ends with the Huggins composition Virgil. Angered by the consistent and steady pounds of an upright piano and adorned with orchestral flourishes, the dynamic shifts in tempos and rhythms effortlessly meld into one another, creating both an exciting and compelling conclusion to the album. kind of other songs it was just in the context of this great lakes we were all living in the house we were finishing the record uh there was this tendency for everything to have that eighth note driving piano thing which again we got from olivia trimmer control that whole ching 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 like that we got that from them they got it from every band in the 70s or late 60s but it's a thing i tried to write one of those songs 
But the whole time, from the moment I started writing it till we recorded it, I always had this fear, which is completely unfounded and ridiculous, that anyone who listened to it, you know, like the fans in my head with the song, would also be like deep Kinks fans and be like, wait a minute. Da, 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 and pictures of you in your birthday suit. I thought it sounded like their Virgil sits is cigarette lit. And it is basically the same partial melody. But because of that, I was always sort of embarrassed of it. But it's probably one of the better things I've ever done. And I shouldn't have been so like shy about it. But that was my whole MO the whole time in this band. Like I'd be very proud on the drums because nobody else could do it. I could be very good with throwing out some uh, keyboard parts and uh, different little uh, tricks here and there because I could do it. But with this, it was like, it's me sitting at the piano, my weakest instrument, and singing the lead melody and trying to make it one of the Great Lakes songs. And I think I tried to overcompensate by making like quite a big production of it. But in another one of those kind of like push and pull scenarios where i was saying that sometimes ben could do something that i couldn't do or i couldn't do something that he could do you know i couldn't for the life of me figure out how to play this song on guitar and if i had written it on guitar it would have been way preferable i could stand up and sing it and it would be very easy for me but he played the acoustic guitar really nailed it pulled out all the chords with different voicings and shapes that i would never do and he was always about that ben was like my uh, guitar teacher in a way Except for, I never hired him. Decided he was going to be my guitar teacher. And every opportunity he could ever have to tell me, oh, why don't you try a different voicing of that? Try a different open voicing of that. Why would you be not economical about the movement of your hand along the fretboard? And I was like, screw you. I'm playing it this way on the low end of the... He's like, yeah, but if you just moved your uh, pinky finger here and then lifted this up here and went up two frets, that would be a G7. Don't you see that? And I was like, no, I don't see that. <laughs> I mean, that went on for years. But anyway, he could see things that I couldn't see, plain and simple. I was more like emotional and uh, immediate, and he was much more measured and bigger picture, kind of the way he looked at the guitar and, and this, the whole song. And then he played the lead, and it almost sounds like a Beach Boys, but specifically it sounds to me like Al Jardine. Not Carl lead guitar Wilson. It sounds like Alt Jardine. And pretty much the rest of it, I did arrange and put together. And Dan and I worked together on the lyrics. Uh, the whole story of the lyrics was inspired by Dan because he brought home the painting of Virgil. I was in New York City. I bought it at a really cool, weird, it's like a vintage store, but it was not really vintage clothes. It was It had just strange stuff from the 60s and 50s and 70s. Kind of looked like a member of the Kinks, this painting with this guy. Looked like almost like a Peter Blake painting or something. And he was holding his hand with a cigarette and it looked like a V. And then those er, IRG or something was visible. And so we just named him Virgil. Now, am I wrong in remembering this? He wasn't wearing sunglasses, but there were plastic sunglass lenses glued to the yeah. actual canvas? Yeah. And it looks good. It sounds terrible, but it looks really good. It worked. It, it was, was like 3D, kind of collage. Right? Yeah, it was like 3D, and I think his hand was like cut out of a magazine, right? And like yeah, it was a the rest hand. was painted. Yeah, and like the hand was a collage, and then the glasses were there. Like it was cool. It looked really good. I don't think at the time I had 
if it wasn't at a thrift store or the J and J flea market, you know, oh, like I paid two dollars for more than anything back then. But that I think was like eighty bucks or something. It was a big purchase for me. Wow, it was, but it was very special. Yeah, worth it. Crum, Donahue, and Huggins would mix the record at home before eventually traveling to Denver, Colorado to collaborate with the Apples and Stereos Robert Schneider on the final mix and master. The bulk of the songs, as far as the basic tracks mixing, we had already done at home really painstakingly, but painlessly because it was the most fun we ever had. And you might have to do something 13 or 16 times. The idea that people can do this in Pro Tools with just the click of a button blows my mind still. But the idea that we were working with only eight tracks, but using sometimes as many as 30 different actual sound sources. So you'd have to go one, two, three, pop off the EQ, pan it to the right, pull it from seven to three, and then wait three seconds and then pull it back up to 10, turn it back to 10. <laughs> and all three of this, were, all three of us were doing this. And so it was... Uh, uh, at, at 2.26, push it to 8, but don't go above 8. And then pan to the right and bring it back to 3 before 2.51. <laughs> but it was like this rehearsed dance. And it was like literally playing an instrument. But you're all playing on the same bench with your hands on the same instrument making the song. And it's thrilling because if you fuck it up, it's like, ah, oh, man. And like you all know where you messed up. Like, oh, dude, okay, I know. 2.28, I know. Shit, why didn't I do it? I should have panned it there. I know. I painted the other way. Okay, right. And then you like get it together. You're like, okay, let's go again. And then you're like, one, two, three. Like look at each other, look at each other's eyes, punch. And then you do it again. You know, and it really didn't matter because you could do it an infinite amount of times. But each time you did do it, it felt like a performance. And when you got it right, there were like high fives and oh yeah. And just like, you know, it, it was like, talk about an endorphin rush. If you got it right, and all three of us just looked at each other in disbelief, like, we did it. Yes. Like, don't lose that tape, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jamie has a, a tape or CD or something with him when he was on tour with, of Montreal and they did a, a run of shows together with the Apples and um, gave it to Robert. And Robert was like, <laughs> I'm mixing this. Jamie came home and told me and Dan, you know, Robert's mixing this. <laughs> we were like, oh, okay, you know, cool. We were, we loved Apple and Stereo, of course, and he had done the stuff with Neutral Milk and Olivia, and his ears were great. And also, what a nice human being he is, you know, he's just a wonderful guy, just really a pleasure to be around, you know. He would, like, wake me up in the morning when I was stand- we were standing in his house, and he'd be like, like, let's go make rock history. <laughs> you know, it's just like a sweet attitude and um, re- such enthusiasm and just really good, you know? He's also just really good at doing... I couldn't believe what he could do. The way he, like, quote, mixed our record is he took our stereo or sometimes two stereo mixes um, that we had bounced down to two tracks or four tracks, and he just EQ'd them using the channel EQs on his big board, he might have had the vocals and like the uh, an overdub or two or three on the other tracks. And that would be it. All the only things he had individually were like 
few overdubs. Our mixes versus what he actually made them sound like was they just seemed to sound deeper and more brilliant and um, crisper and less murky. Ours were pretty cool in their own way. They, they were really they were really murky and the record seemed darker. I mean, not just, I'm talking subtly. It can't change the mood of all that bouncy, happy pop stuff, but it was just, there was like a darker tone to it. And his, uh, he put that like really lovely, crisp, bright sheen on it that is uh, just really characteristic of his work. And I think it um, ultimately really served the record well. For the album art, Donahue works with frequent REM collaborator, Chris Bilheimer, to design the cover image, which primarily consists of a black-and-white photograph of the World Trade Center. For the vinyl edition, a special insert is also designed that, when properly constructed, creates a 3D structure meant to sit on top of the record as it's being played. And I gotta say, as a fan, this concept is very intriguing. But as a record collector... I just cannot bring myself to cut up this insert. If you get the record, on the inside was like a cutout. And it's basically you rolled it up into a tube, and it was the album cut. It was like the building in the cloud. But it created a tube that you placed right on top, you know, of the pasted label of the LP. And you will hold it, you cut out and drop it right on there, and it would spin, and it would just be this little revolving sculpture on your record player. And, uh... I nicked that idea from some weird Czechoslovakian psych record I got. I cannot claim that that was like my idea, but you know, I think we did a good job of the image and the final product of it uh, work. It worked and it looked cool. And you know, like I, it's hard. Like I'm a record collector as well. So I probably would keep it minty, (laughs) not cut it out. You know what I mean? So it was nice to have a few extra copies because we made the record, you know, so we had some copies to, like, cut them up and, like, fuck up a couple. Funny thing is, okay, so I, the the long story, which I will make very short for your listeners, is I was in Scandinavia with the Olivia Tremor Control in 1997, and I went, you know, to... Amsterdam and wound up going to like flea markets and stuff, street markets. And I bought a photo book and it was a cool seventies photo book. And that photograph of the twin towers was in there. So I was like, Oh, this is, this is really cool. I kept looking at it. What, you know, I had it in my backpack or whatever. I kept looking at it. I was like, this is really striking. It was very graphic. It hit me. So when I was back home, I was also, like I collected lots of like psychedelic underground stuff and uh, blacklight posters, which like I later published a book of blacklight posters. So what I wound up doing is cutting this little cloud out of the, of a blacklight poster and like putting it in between there. And it was a reference to a lyric on the album about like drifting up and over the city or something. So, and, uh, I mean, it was pretty wild because social media wasn't a thing, Facebook wasn't a thing, but forums were and chat rooms. And so when 9-11 happened, the 
one of the founders of Kindercore has a band called I Am the World Trade Center. Right. So, this is what made it doubly insane that people thought that we freaks in Athens, Georgia had two bands on the same label, like referencing the World Trade Center before it happened. And either we were total assholes for making like record covers about it, or we were somehow like oracles of what would come. Which yes. Is none, it's just pure circumstance. You know, like it was one of those things where it was just yeah. like, what? So yeah, just connecting I am the World Trade Center. And then it's like, and then people who thought they were like sleuths were like, well, this album has, has, the World Trade Center on it, and there's, it's on their label, and there's fire coming out of the the building, and that's where the fire was, and it was weird. Like, you know, it was the album parent. came out in late 2000, right? Yeah, so it was pretty close. Yeah, I mean, it was it was close enough for people to follow Less this than... weird, yeah, train of thought. So that was strange. We had no response to it other than what. Like many of their contemporaries within the local scene, Great Lakes signed with the Athens-based independent label Kindercore Records, who would release their self-titled debut in April of 2000. There's one point where Robert had said he wanted to put it out, but he seemed pretty distracted and like running the business kind of thing wasn't maybe his real passion. And I feel like maybe the... uh, like the Essex Green EP, we noticed that they had switched over from Robert's Elephant Six imprint to Kindercore also, I think maybe, or they were telling us they were going to, and that just seemed to indicate to us that maybe Kindercore was the right move. I don't know. I don't, I don't really remember. I just, one thing I do remember is like, <laughs> I love the guys at Kindercore and I'm not down on them, but I remember at the time we were a little peeved that our release date they put out our record, a Richard Davies record, and a Masters of the Hemisphere record on the exact same date. So nobody was going to review all three records. <laughs> we kind of felt like we got short shrift. You know, we were kind of offended by that. Not to say anything bad about Richard Davies or Masters, who Masters were our good friends. But it was just like a weird thing to not have our own release date. And so we, I don't know. That was maybe a little, a touchy thing with Kindercore for a while, you know. We had spent like three, literally, I'm not kidding. This took forever to make this record now. We were like three years and they just so unceremoniously, it felt like sort of like dumped it out there with, on the same day with two other records. We were um, not sure what we felt about that. Yeah, no one made a big deal about this record. I don't even remember it being reviewed in the local paper, to be honest. Sorry, Flagpole, if you're listening, but Rolling Stones broke the Elephant Six story before our local paper did. You know, um, good work, guys. Um, Yeah, I don't even remember them writing anything about it. I don't know. This record, it missed. That's it. I mean, like, it just missed. Like, it missed whatever sweet spot in the release calendar. It missed getting reviewed by the right person at the one thing I was frustrated with Kindercore is I think they they released a record by the Sixth Great Lake at the same time, and then I remember being in the Kindercore like little office, and Ryan saying to me, "No one's gonna confuse you with the Great Lakes," and I was like, "You just did, like wow, we, yeah." So 
there's a million things that maybe could have been done differently. The fascination for me was I love the lost record. I love that weird record that, mm-hmm. like the Osmi Tantes record, where it's like it took people 40 years around the world to find out about it or something. You know, like we were all, I, I think it was always the idea that we were like, that this was maybe going to be only appreciated by people who like that kind of lost record or a weird uh, kind of experience or it would have a life later just because I don't know why but that, that was that was a kind of I don't know another daydream one other idea that we were like kind of okay with in a sense I mean obviously we wanted to function you know we wanted to be at least heard enough to play shows and do that we wanted to at least be like a known band that had like the ability to tour like a month long tour and not play total crap house parties, but like real venues and to have some kind of like indie presence. And the ironic thing about this band is that we did several tours in Scandinavia and in the UK, but we never once ever, ever did a U.S. tour. Never once. Uh, and I still don't understand why that happened or how that uh, part of the blame may be the timing of uh, of Montreal and this long-standing idea that somehow Kevin like lured Dottie and I away. But I don't know that's entirely true. And it breaks my heart that we never got to play in like Chicago or San Francisco or Austin. Like it just never, we never did. I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't give a shit. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Cause I, I'd much rather play Stockholm and London than fucking Birmingham. Sorry, Alabama. Slight let down though that we didn't get the chance to even try. Yeah. In 2002, the band would release their second album, The Distance Between, on Orange Twin Records. Included on the album is a cover of the Zombies classic, This Will Be Our Year, a song about hope and possibility and the power of partnership, which ironically appeared on the album that would eventually lead to the Zombies' disbandment and be released after their breakup. The core trio of Great Lakes would make one more full-length album together before ending their creative partnership. Crum has continued Great Lakes, while the other members have moved on to separate creative pursuits, including Donahue's project Dreamboat with his partner Paige Campbell and Huggins' solo material released under the name James Husband. And though the creative alliance between Crum, Donahue, and Huggins did not last, they were able during their time together to take advantage of their youth and through the support of a strong musical community were able to create a document that truly embodied the spirit of artistic possibility and friendship. We were listening to it just the other day. First I played it on vinyl, then I played it off of Spotify through a nice like Bose wireless speaker and Beth came in the room my wife and she was like this sounds amazing like is this some like remixed version or something because she remembered the Great Lakes when it came out and we all kind of had this idea that like even myself like we recorded it on a half inch eight track and uh super outdated uh dat tape was our master and all these things and I just thought yeah we tried the best we could but when I listened to it, it did not sound lo-fi. It did not sound like cassette. It did not sound like guided by voices. It didn't sound like 
trashy. It sounds gorgeous. And the strings and the horns and the clarinets and everything are really uh, clear and full bodied. And I was, it was just funny, like having that much distance from it. Of course, I've heard it in the past 22 years, but not terribly often recently. And to hear it critically, honestly, I was surprised. And to have someone else in my family walk by and be like, oh, this sounds fucking awesome. In fact, what she said was, why didn't this sell more? Or why wasn't this bigger? Or why didn't, why wasn't this band huge? And I was like, oh, gosh. Yeah. Don't make me answer that. To be perfectly honest, I haven't thought about it in years for many reasons. But I feel as if, like, we made the record we wanted to make, which, you know, like a lifetime of trying to make art and music and imagery and things and whatever, I don't count a huge percentage of what I've done as successes or like I achieved what I wanted to achieve. But I think like we did exactly what we set out to do. And I think I'll always be proud of that. So that's how I feel about that record. I wouldn't change a thing on it. There's some parts of it that feel like a little bit kind of like, oh, did I really do that? Or is that a little too precious or something? But we were, you know, from the onset of the recording to the release, I was as young as 19 and no one was as, was older than 25 by the end of it. So we were young men and we made this thing. It's the first thing we made. I think it's right. pretty stand up. Yeah, how do I feel about it? The document of that time, and it's, uh, I'm, there's things I'm proud of about it. It's funny because it's like a totally unsustainable way of working. I'm glad that we did it, but I could never do it again. Like, it really feels like an expression of, it's like us, our lives as young adults, you know, it's like, feels feels like a statement of little more than kids in a way i feel like gives it a charm um but it but it also makes it feel like a million miles away to me now i don't know though it's a it's a nice little listen it it sure sounds good to my ears you know i stand by it i guess ultimately it's a product of that time and I'm, i'm so happy to have a a record of all that fun time of um all the people I got to make music with and rub elbows with and form friendships with and stuff, you know, it's like we, we were, uh, we did something together that was bigger than we could do individually, just like some sort of synergistic potential and possibility. And, um, I'm, I'm proud of it. And in that way, yeah, I think that pretty much says it. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Ben Crum, Dan Donahue, and Jamie Huggins for speaking with me about this very special record. Another special thanks goes out to my man Andrew Rieger for helping set up some of these interviews. You can stream and buy Great Lakes and more from the band and their various projects on the various streaming platforms or at greatlakesbencrum.bandcamp.com. Seek this stuff out. 
It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at alovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.